This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design invests in building and teaching designers using the best tools for the job. I asked product designer Jacqueline Laurier what she's learned about design since working at Facebook. Design is really not about the way something looks. It's really about the way something works. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, MailChimp is looking for the following positions. Software engineer, senior software engineer, iOS engineer, Android engineer, data engineer, data software engineer, director of product engineering, director of mobile engineering, and product designer. RevUnit is looking for a senior UX and UI designer. Dev Bootcamp is looking for a senior software developer instructor as well as a lead engineer. HyperAct is looking for a brand strategist. And Bandcamp is looking for a designer. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. And if you're looking for even more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Join more than 15 million people who use MailChimp to not only send emails, but to grow their businesses on their own terms. Start sending professional-looking newsletters to your clients today for absolutely free. By the way, have you seen their new marketing campaign with, uh, what's it, MailCrimp, NailChamp, SnailCrimp? I actually saw the MailCrimp commercial the other day, although it's really kind of more like a like a mail braid out in a way. Anyway, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can check out the entire campaign. And if you want to sign up for MailChimp, head on over to MailChimp.com. MailChimp, send better email. When you have a great idea for a project, you need to give it a great domain name. And guess what? Finding the perfect domain name is ridiculously easy with Hover. You know, domain names aren't just for websites. You can also use them to create a more professional, on-brand email address. I mean, if you've already got the domain you want, why not just go the extra step with your email address, you know? And if you need a hand, Hover's awesome support team is there to help you. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's hover.com forward slash revision path. Hover, domain names for your ideas. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for professional, business, or enterprise projects. Whether you're building something custom or you're using a CMS like WordPress, SiteGround lets you build better, faster, safer websites more easily, and they offer multiple hosting options that your websites can grow into. And we've got a fantastic deal for you. 
Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path to get 60% off on all hosting plans. Now let's go ahead and get into this week's interview. I'm talking with Google user experience researcher, Melissa Smith. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, so uh, yeah, I'm Melissa Smith. I'm a user researcher, user experience researcher uh, on the YouTube team at Google. And what that means is I work with designers, engineers, product managers, and other specialists at Google to share the user perspective for anything we're doing. So what that means is I run studies with users from the real world <laughs> who come in and evaluate our designs and give, share their perspective, share their perceptions about problems they may be having that the product's not helping with or problems they have with the app or even just things they like about it. So we, you know, don't change it, stuff like that. And just share that with the working with the engineers and designers to improve our products from the user perspective. Now, I know that that might not be a, a thing that a lot of companies will have. They may not have a user experience researcher. There may be that breakdown between design and development and, and pushing it out. But speaking from your role, why is UX research important for any designer out there? So UX research, and I'm just going to say UX for just for convenience sake, but okay. UX is important because when someone's designing something, they're going to be designing it for to complete some task. And the way that they perceive that task to be completed or the way that they're designing it may make the most sense to them. They're like, this is obvious. Like, this is so, so clear and so understandable and every, it will be perfect. And then you go put that in front of someone who, you know, may not be super tech savvy or maybe used to doing something a different way and they won't understand it. And there are ways that a lot of companies and different products will try to fix that. They'll add like tool tips or they'll add like, wizards to walk you through and train you how to use stuff but good design you shouldn't have to think about it you shouldn't have to like rely on essentially band-aids is what we call them like ways to like teach people how to use something it should be very intuitive and should make sense so ux is important and having the researchers there to get the user perspective is good so that you can find out like what do users expect when they see a design that's laid out in a certain way and does it convey or does it do they understand it the way that the designers and the team intended for it to be understood so that's why it's important from just like a design perspective. And then also just, you know, making sure that everyone's on the same page. And if there is something that may have to be explained that it's being, it's a conscious decision, not just because you forgot to realize that some people may not, you know, understand it that way. So it seems like it's less about, or, or maybe I guess this is included in it. It's less about the aesthetics and more about the experience of using, well, user experience, duh, but like the experience <laughs> of, of using the product. Very much so. So I think a lot of people, when they think of like design or user experience and how they work together, they think like, oh, we want it to look pretty. And of course, let's be serious. People like using things that look good, but people also more importantly like using things that they don't have to struggle to figure out where things are, where buttons are, what functions are available, et cetera. So like it's part of it is, yeah, very much about aesthetics. More about of it is actually about how do people understand how to use it? And if they understand it without having to, you know, go to the help and the tooltips or the frequently asked questions to figure it out. Now, you work on the YouTube team and YouTube certainly has underwent a lot of visual changes. I would say maybe even in the past two or three years, has that mostly just been dictated by what the audience is telling you? Or is that also coming like from project management and stuff like that? So there's kind of like a three pronged approach to how things typically get 
developed or worked on, at least here at YouTube and Google. So there's like problems or there's like the one products coming from like the engineering side. They're like, oh, or the design side, rather. They're like, oh, we're designing this thing and we need to make sure people understand that it's going to do how it works and stuff. So that will be like coming from the designers. Then there's a side that's coming from the users where it's like, oh, users have this issue. And we've noticed more that, you know, we've had more complaints that people can't figure out how to do this or more and more errors are coming up. We're seeing drop offs in this certain area. So we will then go in and the researchers and the designers will try to figure out what is causing the problem and how do we fix it. And then the third approach is coming more from like, the product managers or from the up higher execs and they'll be like, we want to add this. We want to achieve this goal, whatever. And how do we get there? So then we'll all work together to try to figure out how can we achieve that goal or how can we solve that problem and then, you know, design and do research to try to figure it out. So there's kind of like three different ways that it comes about. And I think to answer your question about where the big changes from YouTube are coming, I think it's a combination of all of them. Well, I really like the changes that have been made with the autoplay. I know that when that first came out, that was a little bit controversial, but I, <laughs> I mean, it, it keeps me on YouTube. I love it because I usually will have, well, it depends, I guess, on how people use it, but I use YouTube a lot just to play music and people mm -hmm. will make playlists. And when it just keeps auto playing like that, it's just like a, like a regular music playlist. It's great. I love that. Yeah. It's fun too. Cause YouTube has like, a much larger library than even other traditional music players because people have covers and remixes and yeah. it's just so fun if you get you know caught in that yeah, I, I, I think when I, I think I remember seeing somewhere that YouTube is the second largest search engine behind Google. It is. That's a verified fact now, which is oh. kind of fun. It's kind of exciting <laughs> to work on, you know, a site that impacts so many people around the world. How long have you been at Google? So I've been here full time, eight months. Before that, I was in grad school. And while I was in grad school, I did an internship for three months. So yeah, I, it was like through my PhD, I was trying to decide if I wanted to go into academia or go into industry and decided to take an internship here and fell in love with, you know, the Google environment and just the fast pace and the impact you can have on, you know, literally billions of people through the work that I'll get to do and the research I'm getting to do. So I just really loved it and was really fortunate when I got the chance to work here full time. How has it been so far? It's been great. <laughs> it's, it's funny. It's one of those things where I'm a big proponent of people doing internships, whether you're an undergrad, grad school at any point. If you get the chance to work in a real environment, take it because you will never know how much you like or dislike something until you're actually there. Like I feel like it's a lot of work here and there's a lot of things I didn't know even even doing my internship that I didn't learn about until I was here full time, just things like performance reviews and just the sheer amount of responsibility you just get thrown right into. It's kind of overwhelming, but like in a good way, it's just it's kind of also very motivating. It's intimidating and motivating to be around very smart people who are also very motivated just because I don't know, it can be a little bit. The imposter syndrome is a very real thing. Like, <laughs> let don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But it's also very like everyone's super nice and just so helpful and responsive. And I think that's such an important thing for being in a competitive and like challenging environment, just knowing that you can ask people questions and rely on your coworkers. And I feel like I've really gotten that at Google. And that's one of the reasons I've liked it since being here. That's awesome. <laughs> so you got yeah. this, this job right out of, so this is your like first like job job out of grad school. It sounds like. <laughs> yep. This is my first real job. Yeah, I'm not I'm not belittling. It, it is definitely an honor to be here. And 
it is work. Like, you know, everyone talks about Google's perks and stuff, but I think one of the biggest things that I've told people is that they give you these perks is because they want you to stay at work, right? You don't have to worry about, you don't have to worry about going home, but you don't have to eat dinner, then you, you'll stay at work longer, you know, that type of thing. Right. Um, but it's a fun, it's an interesting, fascinating place to work. I remember when I, I visited Facebook back in uh, October last year. And I got to, you know, they showed me some of the campus and I got to see everything. And I mean, they really, it's like you say, those perks do make you want to stay longer. Like I went in one <laughs> building and they had like six full service chefs and they had this one restaurant that you could get. No, it was a restaurant. You went, you sat down and they just brought food to you. Like you didn't, <laughs> they didn't have a menu. I guess they changed the menu every day, but they just brought food to you. And it was like a family style thing and you eat, you get up and. There's a dry cleaning thing over here. They had a vending machine where you could get any kind of electronic that you needed. Like you just scan your badge and like, oh, there's an iPad. Like what? That's crazy. <laughs> it sounds, I mean, from the outside looking in, it sounds wild. But of course, all those things are meant to keep the employees happy, to keep them, keep them there and keep them working. Yep. That's what it is. I think it does a good job. <laughs> <laughs> At least while I'm young and, you know, not having a family to run home to. It's pretty good. Hey, nothing wrong with that. I mean, again, this is like, you know, your first job when you're out of school. This is when you really get that experience and, and see what it's like to take what you've learned and really apply it towards solving big problems. Mm -hmm. So tell me about graduate school. I know you, you kind of you sprinkled in there your doctorate. So I do want to talk. <laughs> uh, you went to George Mason University where you got your master's and your doctorate degree. What was uh, what was your time like there? Oh, grad school. So I, I liked it. Grad school is it's an investment. It's an investment of time. It's an investment of effort. It's a time when you learn about what you want to do career-wise more so than any other time before. Like I mentioned before, I took advantage of my time in grad school and every summer I did an internship of some sort. I interned with the Navy to find out what it was like to do research for the government. I interned with a few contractors to find out more like what it was like on the consultant, like contracting gig. And then I interned with Google. So that was more industry. And of course, like in grad school or as a PhD student, you also have the option of going down academia, which is typically you get a postdoc and then you try to get a professorship somewhere, typically at a smaller or more rural type university. Hopefully you're lucky and you can move up to the larger type schools over time. But that is more like the grind of academia, which is you have to turn out papers and you have to play the politics and stress about tenure. And it didn't seem like something I was super into, which is why I ended up coming into industry. But yeah, grad school, it's fascinating. It's simultaneously super hectic because there's so much things you have to balance. You have to balance taking classes and being a student yourself. Typically, you're also teaching and being a teacher to undergraduates or even other fellow graduate students if you're higher up. Then you're also doing research. So I was conducting tons of different research for myself and, you know, also trying to simultaneously have a life somehow outside of school. So I'm so happy that I did it. I went straight through from undergrad into grad school and now I'm done <laughs> with school <laughs> for the near and probably forever future. But yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things where it's like, I feel like I'm still in shell shock. It doesn't, it still doesn't really sink in until someone, you know, calls me Dr. Smith or I see it written down somewhere and I'm like, oh yeah, that's like, I'm done with that. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you miss anything about it? I do. I do miss the freedom of your time. You know, outside of when you have to teach a class or attend a class as a student, you could balance out your time as much as you want. So I guess that there's a 
trade-offs in that, right? The, the pluses are if I needed to go to a doctor's appointment randomly on a Tuesday afternoon, I could easily just leave school and do that. And it wasn't a big deal. If I wanted to stay super late one night, like until 11 o'clock on campus, I could easily do that. It wasn't a big deal. But the downside is because that there's no set time periods, mm-hmm. you're essentially always working. So <laughs> on weekends, you, you know, there wasn't such a, such a thing as a weekend. Some professors would, you know, send an email, you know, 5 p.m. on a Saturday and expect an answer like pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's like, that's just managing expectations and making sure that you're making setting boundaries and making sure your team knows that. But I think it's a little, you have a little less grounding to stand on that when you're in grad school because you are a student and your advisor is, is king or queen. <laughs> well, so. that, what are, what were some of the areas of research when you were in school that you focused on? Yeah. So I was in a human factors and applied cognitive psychology program. So that's like applied psychology. So I was doing a lot of research on human computer interaction, human trust and automation, things like what are like indicators that you can tell when someone trusts a system that they're working with in a computer or how do you regain trust in a system if a, if a computer makes a mistake? So for instance, an, an example I always like using is if you're using an ATM and it, you know, it accidentally, you typed a button and it popped out like the wrong dollar amount or something. Um, how do you go about regaining that trust of that user? Because, you know, it made a mistake. Like it is a computer, but it's not like a human. It can't apologize to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a computer. So how do you regain trust in a system? And what are the indicators that the trust has actually been regained, et cetera? So it's very more basic stuff, but it has a lot of like real world applications because, you know, computers are here to stay one way or the other. So Computers are here to stay. And we're certainly seeing a lot more autonomous applications of computers, whether it's self-driving cars, whether it's something like the Amazon Go store where you can walk in, <laughs> take what you want and just walk out. Like we're seeing computers kind of take over for a lot of, you know, human roles now. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting, almost moral dilemma in some way, right? Because what automation is meant to do mm-hmm. is help improve human lives or it's supposed to replace humans to do let them do other things that you know computers can't do easily however we're getting to the point now where automation can do a lot of things that humans can do um and we're seeing more and more jobs and skills being done by automation so it's just almost like an interesting like how do you balance that out i attended this really great talk at a conference not too long ago and it was just talking about how ideally we should be making automation to help empower humans or like further human skills not just Mm -hmm. replace them and that's like almost like an interesting it's like almost like a theoretical paradigm approach to automation development but i know it's going to take a lot of a lot of smart people thinking together and a lot of decisions to make sure that we don't you know develop our way into non-existence sorry i didn't mean to get super heavy with this no no we can get (laughs) we can get heavy with it i mean because then humans have to trust machines and robots and computers, you know, to do these kinds of things. Like I think about self-driving cars. I mean, I've seen the news and I watch videos and blogs and things. And they're talking about how we're moving towards, I think even some of the ride sharing services are testing out and using, you know, these self-driving cars. I'm not getting a self-driving car. (laughs) I'm not doing it. Uh, There needs to be a human behind the wheel. (laughs) I mean, technology has to go a long ways before I get in the car and there's yeah. nobody behind the wheel. That's just not. But I mean, those are considerations, right? Like those are, are things where and even though so the tech, 
<laughs> but like even though the technology is there, it's like people have to to trust it. Exactly. And that's the thing. Like even in Silicon Valley where people are all about like and of course this is me generalizing because there are lots of people here, so please don't like put everyone in a monolith. But <laughs> um, you know, like even in, in very tech savvy, tech friendly, tech first areas, people are like, Yeah, I'd love self driving cars. The theory is awesome. And then you ask them, like, well, would you put your child in a self driving car? And almost immediately <laughs> they're just like, No. Yeah. Or they hesitate, you know, and then they realize immediately they're like double standard. And it's just kind of an interesting like and then you ask them. Then I always I always follow up because I'm a psychologist and I can't help myself. I'm like, but you put your kid in a in an Uber or a taxi with a stranger driving. Right. And yeah, how is true. that different? Right. So and it's just like it's just it's very fascinating to me to just see how people step through that process in their mind. It typically works out to them being like, well, at least a human can react to sudden changes or if something happens. Right. True. But the thing is, you know, computers are faster and faster reaction time and more accurate depiction of like an environment in general. Obviously, there are exceptions. If there's a glitch in a system, then, you know, that's a whole different story. But, you know, if an Uber driver like who looks at his phone and he's driving behind the car, like that's also a, a glitch in the system in a way. And I know it's kind of interesting to see how people kind of battle that out, because I think a lot of people are still very much more comfortable putting their their child or a spouse or a sibling or even themselves in a car with a stranger that's a human versus in a car with a stranger that's a computer. And I think that's going to change in our lifetime. Now, we'll see. now, even <laughs> though you've, you've gotten, you know, your degree and you're working at Google, do you still continue any of your research or, I mean, I would imagine you're still applying your degree with the work that you do, but does it kind of factor in where, I don't know, do you still end up doing research even though you're now working at Google? Yes. Very much so. So I'm still publishing my dissertation research uh, because, I mean, I already did it. Now I just have to submit it to journals. And the publication process is very time consuming just because you typically submit and then they have revisions or they'll reject you. And if you do get like re a revise and resubmit, you have to re keep revising essentially until they accept it. And unfortunately, it just takes a lot of time. And I think that's actually one of the downsides of the academic process because publications are such a big form of currency when you're in academia and it takes such a long time to get things published that it's like self-defeating in a way. But that aside, still publishing my grad school dissertation research, but also at Google, we're allowed to, I mean, we do, I mean, we're a group of researchers here and a lot of us have, you know, higher degrees and do like answering questions and asking and do, doing research problems, solving research problems. So a few of us here do actually still publish and do work together here at Google. It's never anything relating to like YouTube products or even users or anything. It's just more like theoretical, like, oh, like what are questions that are more broad facing, like perspectives about like interfaces or even perspectives about industry, stuff like that. Those are questions that a few of us are doing some research, mainly like survey based and like, like case study type analysis or like competitive analysis, that type of stuff that can be can be done that isn't like proprietary or anything. So I will always be involved as long as I have the time and inclination in research in some way, just because it's such, I don't know, it's, it's great to like keep a finger on the pulse of emerging research and emerging topics. And it's really great to be at a place that fosters that as well. Yeah. And I mean, the work that you're doing is, is sort of this bridge between, you know, psychology and tech in a way. And even though revision path focuses largely on design, I think it also factors in that same way because these are still experiences which in some 
in some shape, form or fashion have to be designed. And the data mm -hmm. that you're gathering from your research helps, you know, inform a lot of that. What, what kind of tools do you use when you're doing this research? So when I'm just doing like pure research stuff, it's typically, there's not a lot of tools that I'm using. So I'm bringing in people and I'm running them through prototypes. So we have some UX engineers who are full-time working on like high fidelity prototypes, which is awesome because it's so much better when you're working with interfaces to have like, especially like for instance, the mobile app, when I'm testing out the mobile app, it's so much easier to have someone click through and showcase their actual movements on the phone. If the mocks and if the prototypes are on a phone versus if I have it on a, on a piece of paper printed out, you mm -hmm. know, um, as a paper prototype, but I'm typically using, yeah, high fidelity mocks on a phone. Sometimes I'll use paper prototypes. Sometimes I'll do like things like card sorting, which is just kind of like how do people categorize and group things together. So tool wise, I'm not doing a lot of hardcore tool usage for the research stuff because it's typically getting people in, people in and having them talk and walk through and explain and share their perspectives. Mm -hmm. And then my job as a researcher is to pull out once I get like, you know, 10, 15, 20 people pull out the major themes, what are the underlying concepts? Because obviously everyone has a specific approach to things, but people tend to group together in, in different in general patterns for when we're trying to solve, you know, issue X or figure out how do people think about this specific design concept or something. So tool wise, yeah, not super stuff like and then, you know, we're in Google, so we're using all of the internal Google stuff. So Google Slides, Google Docs, Google Sheets. Yeah, it's a uh, my job as a researcher is pretty low tech tools wise. But since coming here, I have learned things, picked up things like Sketch. Uh, a lot of the designers here use Sketch. Principle is a high click through mock software I've picked up as well since coming here. But yeah, I can't really speak to what the designers are using because they all just pick whatever they want. Some people are still using hardcore Adobe Photoshop and Illustrator and stuff. And yeah, you get like, I think the beauty of being here is that the designers can use what they want. And as long as they can convey what they want, then they get it done. Nice. Cool. Okay. So let's go back a little bit. I know we, we talked about your time at George Mason before there you were at the university of central Florida for school. Yeah. Are, you, are, you are you originally from Florida? Yes. That's where I'm from. That's where my family is born and raised. Tell me what it was like going there. I loved it. So yeah, I was, I'm from South Florida, Fort Lauderdale. I, from very young was super into like science and tech. So my parents put me in a science pre-engineering magnet school. And that's actually where I started doing like science fair. And I first learned about first robotics, which is something I still actively volunteer with. It's like a K through 12 after school robotics building competition. And it's super awesome. I mean, I always joke that my parents, like I was so against it at first. Cause you know, in fifth grade, you know, all my friends are going to the local you know, they're all like setting up to go to the local middle school and I'm like going to be shipped across the county to this like science magnet school. And I was so upset. And I went in the first day and found out about all the cool things we get to do. And I was just like, you know, OK, fine. Until this day, I'm just like it was the best thing that my parents ever did, because I mean, it completely changed my life just being around, you know, finding about science fair and then just doing robotics. And it was stuff I was already interested in. And then they, you know wanted to jump on that and make sure I kept doing it. So I'm really ha happy for that. But yeah, so we did that all through middle school, high school, stayed active in science fair, actually went to international science fair, my junior year of high school, which is super cool. It was in Indianapolis, which at that point I was thought was really cool. Cause I'm like, yeah, I've never <laughs> left Florida, you know, but now I'm older and I'm just like, Indianapolis, really? Right. Like, that's where international science fair is. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty nuts. Yeah. And 
I, I liked it. Went to University of Central Florida for engineering initially, but because I really wanted to keep doing robotics. And then I found out about human robot interaction, which is a subfield of human computer interaction, which is a subfield of applied cognitive psychology. And I was like, okay, that's actually what I want to do. I'm okay with soldering and, and building circuit boards, but I'm more interested in how people interact with the final product of a robot. So I switched majors and then that the rest is kind of history at that point. I got an internship at the, as, at the Navy during my junior year of undergrad. And that's when I found out about George Mason's program and I got to tour the school and I applied. I wasn't, I was like, I'm probably not going to get in, but you know, whatever, I might as well try. And I got in and <laughs> fast forward, you know, seven years now and I'm done. And it's really exciting. UCF was fantastic though. I, I mean, it's a large school. I think it's the second largest school in the nation now, population wise. And, but I was in the honors college. So like I had like the really big school feel with the football team. I mean, not the biggest football team, like compared to like UF and FSU and UM or like any school in Florida. But, you know, I, ha- I was able to go to football games and just have that big school, like awesome city feel, but then also have like the, the smaller, more intimate community of the honors college within the big school. So I think that really helped solidify like my desire to go into academia or, or stay, you know, academically focused and stuff. So yeah, I love UCF. I love UCF. I, I have nothing negative to say about my time there. Yeah. And then moved to DC and now I'm in California. So <laughs> just, I'm just country hopping, you know, around the country. Was it a big kind of cultural shift for you going from, I mean, from the South to the East coast to the West coast like that? Culture shift. Interesting. I don't think so. I think I'm really good about finding people who, or not good, I'm, I guess I'm very lucky in, in the fact that I've been able to find my community, people that I click with and people that inspire me and who've become lifelong friends wherever I've gone. In undergrad, it was my random roommates my first year. We ended up being really good friends. We're still really good friends. And, you know, friends of friends finding that way. In grad school, grad school is interesting because everyone's typically coming from you know, somewhere to that point in your life. And people tend to be a little bit older, so a little bit more mature, a little less gung-ho about partying, stuff like that. So because you're a little bit older, the the friendships tend to be a little bit more mature, like almost immediately. So that's, uh, I also have really good friends from grad school and still people that I keep in touch with. And then here in, in, in the work environment, so like you said, this is my first real job. So I'm kind of now balancing that whole like, okay, now everyone kind of has their own life outside of the office. So yeah. new city, new knew everything. How do you make friends? And I think that's something that I'm still very much in the process of figuring out. So <laughs> stay tuned. But yeah, no, meeting cool people, <laughs> finding finding hobbies that I'm really into. I like, you know, still I'm involved with First Robotics. I've gotten involved with the community here, the First California community. Ballet is a th- uh, fun hobby of mine. I just sort of gotten involved with the local dance school and stuff like that. So I think culture shock wise, though, I don't I mean, I've always lived in or near a big city, and I feel like they all kind of feel the same way. I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, my first time in California, I was, God, how old was I? I think I was like 18, maybe 19. I mean, I'm originally from from Alabama, and I went to school here in Atlanta at Morehouse, and I got <laughs> an internship with, uh, with NASA, and I was at the NASA facility in Moffett Field, which is right outside of America. Yeah. And so that was, nice. my first, that was my first time in California, and I loved it. Like, <laughs> I did not want to go back. The nice. Uh, and this was like, like I don't know, this was maybe like 2000-ish. 
Yeah, it was mm-hmm. 2000, it was 2000 when this happened, and I loved it. It was great. I didn't want to come back. Like I came back, and my mom had even said that like my voice had had changed, and I had gotten like this California accent, whatever the California accent. Is. <laughs> it wasn't surfer guy, it wasn't Valley Girl, but she was like, "You got, you came back with an accent now," and and everything like that. <laughs> it was great. I loved it. I fell in love with California when I first moved out there. So, and I mean, I came from a small town, and I guess because Moffett Field was fairly small. I mean, we mostly spent a lot of time on the base, so. Every now and then I would take the train, I would take Cal train up to, to San Francisco just to be in the city. But I guess because mm-hmm. we were still in this kind of small-ish town, it didn't feel like it was a huge shock. I mean, I was in Atlanta, which is a, a much bigger city, and mm-hmm. I felt fine. It was great. So I know what you mean, kind of once you once you find those people that kind of center you, those people or those activities, wherever you go, how's that saying go? Wherever you go, there you are. Yeah, like, yeah. That's kind of what it's like. Exactly. Who are some of your mentors? Who are some of the people that have helped you out along the way? So I've always respected my teachers. I've had some amazing teachers my entire life. Um, I'm still like, it's so funny to say this, but I'm like, I'm Facebook friends with some of my teachers, like from high school and stuff, you know, or like I'm friends with on Goodreads. I like, I read a lot with uh, some of my old English teachers and I don't know, it's, it seems silly to like joke about it, but it's really exciting to have these people who they could have just, you know, graded my papers, given them back and just gone about their lives, left me to my own devices. But no, people who like took a vested interest in me from a very small age and like, you know, really fostered, like really very, very encouraging of all of the questions I would ask or like all the endeavors I would try to undertake, stuff like that. More recently, I just had some really great mentors like through grad school. One of my things is I'm always interested in finding out like working with different topics and different areas of research. It's one of the things that I really enjoyed in grad school. And I think Mason did a really good job was allowing collaboration between the different, the different labs and different topic areas, just because it was something I was always very much interested in. I'm, you know, I have my primary research focus, but I really want to learn a little bit more about this side project over here, or maybe help collaborate on this other one over here, just to learn a little bit more because, you know, knowledge is power, as they say, but just having mentors who were very, open to that and allowing that to happen and very encouraging of, you know, trying different things and getting involved in different projects. That's been really helpful. More recently, I've had a few, like my initial mentor from when I interned here at Google has been a really great advocate, just a great resources because I'm not directly working with him um, at Google, but been a great resource to talk to you and stuff. But yeah, I don't know. I just, I guess if I were to sit here and think, who are my mentors? They tend to be teachers in some form, whether it was teachers from when I was young or professors from grad school, or I guess now, you know, mentors here at at work. So, well, I mean, the journey that you've had, you know, going from undergrad to grad school to getting your doctorate to moving across the country to now being, you know, at this new company at Google, like what has kept you motivated and inspired throughout all of that? Like I alluded to, I really like learning. I really like learning new things and applying it in unique ways. I like feeling like I have an impact with my work, um, whether it be, you know, something like, oh, we helped reduce this error rate, you know, <laughs> for this product. Or whether it's more like, you know, one of the reasons I still stay involved at first, it's helping kids feel empowered and inspired to feel like they can, you know, build things and learn things and undertake things that they thought were complicated and now understand and can share that. I just am very motivated 
by having an impact. And it doesn't have to be huge, right? Like, I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, if I'm not changing the world tomorrow, then it's useless. And I, I don't think that's a good, I don't personally think that's a good attitude to take because then you're going to always just give up at that point. I mean, no one changes the, no one changes the world overnight, you know? And unfortunately, or, you know, let me correct that. I think people can change the world overnight, but it's typically not in good ways. <laughs> if you want to positively change the world, it's going to take a little bit of time and a lot of effort. But yeah, I'm, I'm just very motivated by just helping have impact and in ways that I see I can and just helping and, or, you know, just using my powers combined with others to make that impact, whichever way it can be. So, and also just coming from my parents were always, you know, super helpful or not super helpful. <laughs> I think that sounds so condescending, super inspiring and like motivating my entire life. They, mm-hmm. from a very, from a very small age, they were always just like, Melissa, you can, you know, you can do what you put your mind to. You just have to put in work and, you know, work hard, be nice, and just keep focused on your goal. That was uh, the three things that my mom and my my dad always uh, imparted into me and my three siblings. I'm the oldest of four kids, so okay, yeah, that, uh, that helps a lot. Trying to be a good person, do what you got to do, and keep focused on what you're trying to get to. And right now, I'm just trying to you know better myself as a researcher and hopefully like love like level up, but no, not level up. Um, try to like you know, eventually become more of like a research director role because I could, I really like want to have even more impact and make sure that the the role of research stays relevant in this company and even in just in the tech industry in general, because research is very important. Is that kind of where you see yourself in the next few years going towards that? Yeah, I, I think so. I definitely, I think I'm like, I like working with other researchers. I'm not to cheat my own horn. I'm pretty good at like managing teams and like being a good like being able to like dissect okay this is what the underlying problems are let's make sure we're handling this that type of thing and yeah being being a research director is just it's exactly where I'd see myself being it would be like the best of both worlds being able to be a leader and like help shape research but then also getting to still work with you know awesome other people and impacting a product not just like you know leading a lab at a university that may or may not be able to turn out results quickly or anything. And now I, I learned that you're also an entrepreneur as well. You have a, an app. Can you tell us about the app? Yeah. So, so during grad school, one of the things I did was I just always participated in design competitions and just different projects, one-off projects like that, just because it's, it's a good to get a break with something that has a finite deadline that would, wouldn't drag on indefinitely, but also mm-hmm. just like tax a different part of my brain. So I did a few design competitions. One of them was the FAA design competition. The FAA is the Federal Aviation Administration. They run like all of our aviation and flights and airplanes in the U.S. and actually I think around the world now. But they, every, every year they have an annual design competition that they put out to graduate schools and have them try to solve different problems that the FAA is having and in one year, 2013, they had an ask for the task was to try and apply FAA data in an innovative application. So essentially coming up with an app that would help improve the travel experience. So a team and myself, we submitted an idea for an app that would essentially provide real time traveler specific updates about the travel experience. Because a big part of traveling is anxiety associated with not knowing the state of the airport. So there are people who have actual anxiety about traveling. They're like, I'm afraid of planes. I'm afraid of crashing. I'm afraid of turbulence. You know, that's anxiety that's 
you know, that's more psychological and that's not what we're trying to get at. We're trying to get at the fact that the person who's like, I'm going to leave for the airport five hours early because I don't know how long it's going to take to get through security, you know? And of course that's an exaggeration, but you know, some people, they just don't know. And more and more airports are getting apps, airlines are getting apps, et cetera. But the thing is, I don't want to have five apps for the five airports I go to and the three airlines I fly through. You know, we just want to have one that will tell me, is my flight on time? And if so, if not, then how late is it going to be? And also like, how long is security going to take? How long is ticketing going to take? That type of thing. So yeah, we came up with this idea that we now called Fleet. And yeah, it's just an app that allows you to find out status of the update or airport status. And then also you can find out things like, you know, where's the nearest restaurant to your gate? Where's the nearest, I don't know, retail store if you want to buy some, you know, souvenirs or something relative to your gate. So now you not only have information about the state of the airport, but also where things are in the airport relative to where you are. Yeah, we're still working on it. It's kind of like chugging along in the background. <laughs> it's a team of us. It's an interdisciplinary team. So we have a few designers, a few programmers, a couple business people, and then a few researchers like myself, seven of us total. And no. yeah, it's kind of set up and it's, you know, making a few dollars a, a week or whatever. <laughs> it doesn't mm-hmm. have to, it's, you know, it's just doing its thing. It's just kind of fun though, because it started off as literally like a distraction, like design competition project. Now it's a real thing. Well, if it comes on Android, I will definitely use it because I could, <laughs> I could certainly use that in airports. Like if I'm traveling for speaking or something like that, that would be great. Mm-hmm. So just to kind of, uh, you know, like wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? Yeah. So my username everywhere is Mabsmith, M-A-B Smith. So if you Google that, you'll find everything. I'm most frequent on Twitter. I like it. It's easy. It's simple. I share a lot of articles, randomly tweet randomness, but yeah, uh, Mabsmith. And I mean, I have a website, but I like, it's mainly just there now i haven't really updated it in a while but yeah twitter is where you can find me and i'm very active on twitter so feel free to reach out all right (laughs) sounds good well melissa smith thank you again so much for coming on the show i I like what you had to say that that three-pronged approach that google slash youtube kind of takes when it comes to building problems i think it's something that is really essential for teams really of any size like it it sort of takes the onus off of both the designer and the developer to, I don't want to say have to think about it, but if you've got the person researching and doing the data behind it, it gives the designer more time to design, it gives the developer more time to develop. And not saying that those cross-function you know, cross skills aren't important, but it also just kind of lets people like you do what they do. So it leverages that ease within the whole kind of project management workflow. But aside from, I mean, all of that, I mean, your story of, Growing up, getting interested in robotics and then shifting from engineering to robotics to user experience research, it's, it seems a little odd, but it all kind of works together. And you're, I mean, you're a <laughs> testament to that, of course. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is awesome. And yeah, I'm really excited and glad to, you know, share my perspective. Thoughts of love are And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Melissa Smith and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Melissa and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways. 
such as showing how internal design critiques work at Facebook, sharing resources about VR and other cutting edge tech, and by giving away great tools and resources like Origami Studio, popular device templates for Photoshop and Sketch, and even diverse hands for mockups. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 15 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to grow their businesses and make money in their sleep. Speaking of which, I've talked before about how you can set up Facebook ads, you know, within MailChimp, but if you use MailChimp for e-commerce as well, you can now add order notifications for things like shipping, refunds, cancellations, and all of that ties right into your MailChimp list. So it's like having your entire marketing automation toolbox right there in one spot. It's really cool. Sign up for a free account today and give it a try. MailChimp, send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. With free private domain registration and your choice of domains across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there, how can you turn that down? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Since 2004, SiteGround has been empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, faster, safer websites without having to worry about hosting. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path and get 60% off, 60% off all hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. Subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps out the show by bumping us up in the iTunes rankings for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Visit us at yepitslunch.com for all your design, strategy, and creative consulting needs. And if you like the work that we're doing here with Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. You know, now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. Pledge levels start at just $1 a month, and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.